0: Creeds and criticism meet.
1: You're listening to the Split Frame of Reference podcast... Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Nick.
0: And I'm Allison.
1: And today we have a treat for you.
0: Yep, we've got Cynthia Westfall on. Uh, she's Associate Professor of New Testament at McMaster Divinity College, teaching New Testament, Greek exegesis, and biblical interpretation. Uh, she's co chair of the Biblical, Greek, and Linguistic Section of the Society of Biblical Literature and co chair for the Evangelical. Um, and gender section of ETS. Um, she's also working on a handbook on the Greek text for Hebrews. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it is. Hooray! I, I'm, not, I'm not co-chair for the gender section this year. Not this year. Still, no, I, I stepped down and I probably need to change that on my site, but I am on the steering committee still.
0: Okay, awesome. And then are you also co-ed- co-editor for the third edition of DBE?
2: Oh, and I have some great news. Nice. As of yesterday, we turned in our manuscript to Ivy, yeah, yeah InterVarsity, and so it is done. It yes. is finished.
0: Yes. Yeah. So you, had, this is the Discovering Biblical Equality book um, that mm-hmm. has been kind of number one forever. That was edited by Ron Pearson, and, and and
1: and Fee a while uh, back. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Back in two thousand six. Yeah. Like,
2: had two editions in 2006, and now this is the second edition. Um, and meanwhile, Rebecca Grutice ha- has died
0: yeah. in,
2: of early onset dementia. That's a complication of a, of a medical condition. And Gordon Fee was also a um, uh, an assist. Uh, I can't remember what you called, but a contributing editor. And, yeah. and he has also uh, become become subject to Alzheimer's, and yeah. so. Uh, it's with it's with deep gratitude and also with a certain amount of lament that that we changed the editors and so now it is uh, Ron Pierce me so um, Krista McCurland came on and um, added her awesome editing abilities uh, to the team and um, so the three of us Put out the third edition together, and uh, we have some new contributions and some new chapters that are really vital.
0: Yeah, Krista, uh, basically, I hear helped take over the project management of the of the thing while she was breastfeeding. She did. Everyone has it?
2: She did. I feel like I feel like she had just given birth, and yep. <laughs> she kind of said like Give me a day, and I'll be on it." And she was. So it's yep. um, been yes, well. I'm, I'm a member of her fan club. Let's put it that way. Yes. <laughs>
1: she, she's a superhero. I, I love Chris. She her. is, she
2: Someone model. to continue
0: to watch. Yeah, I met her back in the day when she was starting Thrive uh, Ministry at Biola,
1: just starting it. Yeah, she was a, tal- her and her husband were Talbot students, I think at that time. And uh, they TA'd for, uh, for Ron when I was in, when I took Ron's class at Biola. So I, they graded me pretty harshly, but I got, <laughs> an, I got an A minus in the class. <laughs>
0: You
2: okay. <laughs> I can imagine she would. I see it. <laughs> you know, yeah. Not you personally, but just that that she would be like that. I have a I have a uh, what we call a GA like that, Darlene Seal, who has uh, edited for Craig Blomberg and continues to edit for Craig Blomberg. And she came she came to me like an experienced oh. editor, and I'm just uh, she she is uh, quite. Quite critical. <laughs> but it's really good. I mean, anyone who has, has her to look at your work, either her or Krista, it's a great thing.
0: Yeah, and just uh, there's one other thing that I'd like just our listeners to know about, and I've said this before, uh, Cynthia also wrote, again, uh, in my opinion, one of the top, uh, maybe uh, two or th- I guess three, if we count DBE, um, top books on gender and theology, and that's uh, Paul and Gender: Reclaiming the Apostle's Vision for Men and Women in Christ. And so, I would highly recommend that if you guys are going to get a book um, on gender, and I would do in the Bible, I would do this book. And then also, we recommend Philip Payne's book and Discovering Biblical Equality, of
1: course. Did I did I review your book, Cindy? I feel like I did. Did I? Yes, you did. Okay. You did quite early. Okay. Oh, yeah, I, I, saw, I saw the cover and I was like, yep, I, ne- I need to read this. I'm, I'm really curious to see what you did. And it was, it's, I loved it.
2: Did we know each other at that time? I think no. we
1: did. No? I think we were Facebook friends, but we, we did meet at the CBE conference, uh, probably about a few, maybe a month or two after that was published in, I think it was Priscilla Papers.
0: I knew Allison at that time. Yeah, when, how did we meet? I don't
2: remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to remember. And I think that um, you were an intern for uh, Christians maybe. for Biblical Equality. And it might be that we were names to each other. Okay. We actually met. So when we met face to face, it might have passed a notice because I think we already knew each other projects um, okay. and things. That Did could you... be. Yeah. Well, we, could, we could explore that more later.
0: Yeah. Right? I was like, oh, it's Cynthia. Just... <laughs> yeah.
2: I think okay. I knew about you. Um, and Mimi had talked about you.
0: Okay. Great. Um, all right, so um, would you mind uh, telling some of uh, the split frame of reference listeners a little bit about yourself and just how you came to be a biblical scholar and um, especially your interest in lingu- linguistics and exegesis?
2: Right. I will try to keep this short. I was not born into a Christian household, I was born into an agnostic household, and um, I was actually raised to be hostile to evangelicals and um and really actually discipled to reject it but i um i ended up becoming a christian at the age of 14 and um became became committed to a church that was basically evangelical fundamentalist and then i um i very very much bought into um the whole discipleship and mindset. And I think the, the most important thing for that was this really, really high view of the word of God. Mm. And that was so important to me um, uh, just in terms of my future, in terms of my mental health, in terms of my development, because I do not think my family was a really safe environment. Mm. And so I really, really depended on scripture to be an anchor and a guide Wow. And a source of truth. And so I look, I, I look at what happened to me. I look at what happened to my family. Mm-hmm. And I say, what made the difference? Well, Jesus Christ, of course, made the difference. But it was really um, Jesus Christ as I encountered him directly through a lot of reading of scripture on my own. I just devoured it from the very beginning. And, and I, I think that I can say that I really encountered Jesus through the gospels and really did form this personal re- relationship to him that was scripture based. So this whole idea of the word of God being authoritative and being profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training and correction was was the, the core of who I became and, and the core of really my desires from then on. And so I um, ended up I there's a story behind this but my my parents sent me to Biola oh wow let's say we just the 60s had just ended and both of my brothers were arrested in the riots over the Vietnam War so my (laughs) parents decided that I should that if I wanted to go to Biola I was gonna go to Biola I was so excited uh, because I was going to have a chance to study Greek and Hebrew, and I, I thought that, of course, I would be fighting tooth and nail for a place in the classroom, because everyone would want to be studying Greek and Hebrew, because that's the outcome of a high view of the Word of God, yeah. to actually immerse yourself in their original languages, but when I got there, I found myself actually discouraged from doing that, because women didn't do that, right? Yeah, it that's became, true, and that's a 60s. It, it wasn't, the women weren't in the Greek classes, or the Hebrew classes, and, and um, the, the first thing I felt they needed to do is to, to continue to learn how to be a godly woman first priority in a biblical way. Mm. And that ended up being a little debilitating at that point in time and confusing and, um, a little misdirected. Mm. And so I, uh, you know, people would say to me constantly, Oh, if only you were a man, you'd be a pastor, you'd be a pastor for sure. Mm. And, um, and, uh, I, I thought if, if only I, I were a man, I'd go to seminary. Mm. And not just seminary, but Dallas Seminary, because that was really where you really get the language you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just desired so badly. And so I had friends that made their plans and, and I was choosing, uh, you know, I, I had a lot of Bible, but can't be a Bible major. So, you, you know, so, you know, I cho- chose history. So I became yeah. um, a history major. And I studied the history of Christianity because I thought, you know, if I can't like uh, teach Bible I'll teach history and I'll teach the history of Christian thought and the way yeah. that they interpreted the Bible and oh. um, <laughs> yeah well that didn't work <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Fooled nobody Fool nobody because I, of course I was interested in how the Bible was read and interpreted and so if we're going to do it historically so I went on for an MA in history and you know concentrated on church history and interesting things like that yeah. religious the religious uh, responses to the demonic plague we won't go on with that. But <laughs> I ended up getting, getting into the campus ministry. Yeah. And, and um, they made me go to seminary. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have to go to seminary. I'm probably the only one. <laughs> yeah, she was
0: like, one. oh, you poor <laughs> thing.
2: <laughs> I have an excuse. No one's saying that I'm pushing myself here. And so I, I just loved seminary and, and it was just like a duck to water. And, and, uh, I just, you know, thought this is where I'd love to stay. And, um, I got married and then, uh, my husband said he wanted to go to seminary. And I said, I know where to go to seminary, go to Denver seminary. Cause that's where I was going. Yeah. So he went to Denver seminary and I went to Denver seminary and I continued going to seminary. And, um, I, I switched to an MDiv because I thought that's where you got the languages. I finally got my Greek and Hebrew, um, and I loved it. I just loved it. I loved seminary. I was—I to me, that was the height of everything that I could wish for. And I—the the thing I couldn't walk away from was the Greek. Mm. I just loved the Greek, and so I just kept showing up at seminary on every pretext. and eventually- <laughs> Yeah the 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 professors were laughing at me saying you're going to show up here in your walker aren't you and you're and so right now <laughs> <laughs> do <walk her> yet <laughs> yeah. and uh, but but it, 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 at any rate you know yeah. um Craig Blomberg had me um do some teaching with him in Greek and finally once and you know you just got to get your PhD yeah and At the same time, Catherine Kruger came to campus and said that, that we just don't need women pastors. We need women to get their PhD. That Mm. that was before Craig spoke. And in both cases, it was like a bell tolling that that's what I'm supposed to do. Mm. And I, I absolutely had no real um, high expectations, but I just said, that's, that's where I take this. That's the next step. Yeah. And so, And it's just a funny story, but it's almost like I just it's it's almost like Craig bustled me on a plane to London and I ended up doing um, a degree in the UK um, part time where I spent three years out of the year in um, in England. And Craig Blomberg said, now that I see what you're interested in, you're interested in discourse analysis and linguistics. You've got to study with Stan Porter nice and it all just kind of happened it, it felt like accidentally and and um i had and i had no idea that i would write books or give conference papers or any of these kinds of mm-hmm. things i just kept falling into them
0: nice and it
2: was just all about studying the word of god and pursuing what i was called to do and uh, there was not really a great agenda to it and i still i still fall back on that and say I'm not the greatest example for someone who says, this is what, this is what I'm pursuing because I just fell into it accidentally and, and I, I kind of just did what I wanted to do. And, wow. and this is where it ended up.
0: Yeah. But I mean, for all the people that, you know, it doesn't work that way. There's always, sometimes it happens. And that's great. And, and so say,
2: you're, you're, you're looking, I got my PhD at the age of 50 and uh, what meaning I, I worked on it. Well, my, my children were all three teenagers when I started, not teenagers wow. when I finished, but um, not, not all of them were teenagers, but um, yeah, so I had some of that, those challenges, but I, yeah. I never felt that I, I quite had the kind of um, pressure maybe some people have. It was that's all true. just, it was all just a pleasure of discovery and, and uh, being cultivated to do what I think I was created to do.
0: And sometimes that's it the takes of my off. life. Yeah. Pardon me? Sometimes it just takes longer. Um, I know some people get discouraged in their um, early 20s and 30s when things don't fall into place immediately and they hit roadblocks, you know. And I, and I think about, like, what would have happened if, like, you know, you had been at Biola and thought, oh, no, I can't do Greek or Hebrew. You know, maybe, maybe I'll do something completely unrelated and, you know, do something I'm allowed to do. Rather well, that
2: than what I did.
0: <laughs> sort of, but you kind of snuck back in, like in your own way. I think that's kind of where you see the call,
2: right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was doing history. I was also doing Latin America, and um, I had a minor in Spanish. Yeah. And so there was that. There awesome. was that additional. A road opening up. I still wonder if someone something's going to go there, right? What am I going to do with my span? Well, I did teach Spanish, but um, I what you know, in and all, in, in all these years intervening. Yeah. But it, it's it's to say that uh, yeah. I mean, I think the call was consistent and yeah. unavoidable for and me. And you stuck back but in, <laughs> honestly.
0: You're like I'll just do interpretation for history. <laughs> well, I
2: was doing it. I was, you know, if I yeah. weren't doing it in public, I was doing it in private. Yeah. And I right. and I was. I always said it's like the Passover. There's this one point of the Passover where you have the cup of wine and mm. you go through the plagues and you go through each of the plagues and you pour it out. and You say, if you stopped here, it would have been enough. If yeah. you stopped here, it would have been. And so that's kind of what I felt like. I just wanted to be immersed in the Word of God. Yeah. And it was it was enough at every point. And I think that's maybe, and what I didn't bring out, of course, that should have been obvious, is that I'd been complementarian mm. uh, during this whole experience. Yeah. And through, through the majority of my, my marriage and raising my children, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until um, actually uh, well, Christians for Biblical Equality formed. Oh, wow. And I got contracted by Alice Matthews in mm-hmm. Denver and said, would you join us? And I had been not <laughs> fast to get on this bandwagon. I had waited about, I think you, if you counted up, it would be 20 or 25 years mm of studying it and studying it and thinking and, and, and judging and deter- determined, um, in the campus ministry, a lot of my close friends were egalitarians. I wasn't going to go there just cause they were, yeah. I would have to be convinced by the word of God. And so at the, and so I had been simmering and backburning. And then when Alice Matthews called me, I said, I thought, and this is kind of how, how I think God has spoke to me. I, it was just, yes, I will. I'm there. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And I crossed, but it wasn't. It wasn't precipitous. It uh-huh. was a long and involved process. And then I think the book *Paul and Gender* is is uh, continuing to work those things through and make them so that it was coherent to say this is what convinced me. This is why I took this position. But it was not a, an easy position. And I continued to re, uh, to coexist in the Complementarian Church until I came to Canada.
0: Yeah, it's something I appreciate about the book too. It's a lot more um, connected. So rather than just kind of treating everything in isolation, like we're just going to interpret this passage and this passage and then this passage, um, everything is kind of related to everything else, even though you do justice to each individual section as well. Something I appreciate. Um, So, okay, so in that vein, um, Maybe if you could give um, everyone an overview of your interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15.
2: Yeah. Um, So I'm going to kind of follow what I did in the book. And to say I started with 1 Timothy 2, uh, 15, and I pointed out that anyone who's coming to this passage has a number of broad exegetical choices that they might not even be aware of that they are making, or probably they have already made them. They don't question them. And so the first thing is, is is First Timothy authoritative? And this is where, this is the first great, great divide, is that some people just will say, First Timothy is not written by Paul, it's uh, pseudonymous, and we don't even take it seriously. And then the other group would say, no, it's authoritative. And yeah. that group that believes it's authoritative may, may divide a little bit further and the next thing would be is first timothy pauline and um so a lot of, of conservative scholars would say first timothy is, is pauline but it's not written by paul hmm. and another group will say no it's written by paul it's it's, it's uh, paul is the author and basically that's why it's authoritative yeah. uh, but but the group that thinks it's Pauline will say, no, it's still authoritative. This is within the Pauline circle, or it's written by uh, an Aminuensis that's kind of like a ghost writer. But uh, it is Pauline. And so that would be the second thing. The third thing I think is a really interesting one is, is First is Timothy a personal letter? And so those who say that the text is Pauline Um, Many of them, and even if they say it's written by Paul, will actually say it's not a personal letter. They will say that it's written uh, for the universal church. Everybody was supposed to read it, which actually people that think it's non-authoritative might might think it's that way too. Just written for everybody. Or it's written for Ephesus. And I I actually would say, huh, this is interesting because the church, but the letter presents itself as a personal letter. So the way I kind of cut through all these interpretations is say up to this point, you know, I don't care. I mean, I do care, but say whether it's authoritative, whether it's Pauline, whether it's written by Paul, I think the correct interpretation of this letter is to read it by its own lights. And that is, it says it's written by Paul. It presents itself as a personal letter. So if you're, and I draw this from narrative criticism, um, to say if if you're going to read this and and interpret it as it's asking to be interpreted, you're going to interpret it as a personal letter. Now, if you actually um, believe in the inspiration of scripture and everything, and you want to say it's not a personal letter, I think you're on shaky ground. And people say it's not a personal letter because it ends with, in the very last nine, after all these um, addresses to Timothy and the second person singular, it signs off saying, God be with all of you. And they go, see, all of you. It's written to all of you. And I said, no, no, this is a convention. And in, in uh, writing letters in the first century, if you compare it to other letters, uh, most of the personal letters probably have a wish to the community or family at the end. So the next thing is what's the context of, a, of the letter? Um, and, and so is it written, now it, it, those who say that um, you know, it's Pauline, it's authentic, it says it's written to Timothy in, in Ephesus. And so again, I think you say, if you're really trying to understand the letter as it's interpreting itself, it's placing itself in the Pauline Canon as a personal letter written to Ephesus. And yeah. so I suggest, let's start out reading by that and to, instead of doing some kind of weird historical deconstruction. If we mm-hmm. read it in that context, how does it read? And that's my suggestion of the way forward. Um, but I'm obviously saying everybody's made all kinds of choices at this point, and a lot of them unexamined. The last thing is when you look at Timothy, well, the second to the last thing, maybe. If you look at Timothy um, 2, 1 through 15, what is the context of that passage? And so in most of our Bibles, at least especially the early Bibles growing up, it said this was, this; was these were instructions for a worship service. mm and so they said this was just directions for a worship service. But I'm saying there should be other choices alongside that because that's actually not indicated in the passage. This is about a worship service. In fact, I challenge uh, anyone to show me that there's anything that's indicating a worship service in here. What I do think that there's an indication that Paul is writing to address false teaching. So I would say the two primary uh, views of what's the context of the passage is it is what it says it is mm-hmm. it's 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 correcting it's, it's writing timothy to correct false teaching or the other one is to say oh we all of a sudden have a deviation of topic <laughs> even though he said he was cor- correcting false yeah. teaching this is
0: really about a worship service That's a giant aside yeah
2: yeah ju- yeah a a, a a great big deviation in the text and that's one of the things about discourse analysis that taught me to say, you know, basically texts are supposed to be coherent and, uh, and they should make sense to the person who's writing them and probably made sense to the people receiving it. If they, they kept it as saying, you know, this is, this is you know, worthy of being read by the churches, it must have made sense to them. So these the suggestions that there are all these strange deviations and incoherence actually doesn't fit I think the first que- the first approach should be, how would I read this coherently? Coherently, I'm signaled that this is correcting false teaching. And um, also, when I read it contextually with the culture, when you talk about praying, um, that doesn't signal to me that this is a worship service. This signals, uh, because prayer took place everywhere, everywhere. And uh, I can point that out in scripture. I can point out that Paul said, Pray without ceasing, which would mean in every place. I could point out in the passage that Paul says he's telling men to pray in every place. And, um, you know, an ecclesia is a verbal noun. That's a gathering of people. And he's talking about every space. And don't forget, and and people say, well, that's a public worship service. say, wait a minute. Okay, the Pauline churches were meeting in house churches. That's not even consistent with what we know of the history of the early church. And so there are all kinds of things that have been unexamined, and that people, but people are just reading this passage, and they know they've seen the heading, even if it's not in your current Bible. And here it is in the Bible right in front of me, Instructions on Worship, 1 First, uh, First Timothy chapter 2. That's the NIV 2011. Wow. This is about instructions on worship. Well, when it says that, that's how I read it. Yeah, that drives true. my reading With the headache, and yeah. that's exceedingly important and the last uh the last choice or maybe the key choice to how you read this passage is is how you read that that word um that is translated as uh, well in many ways in the king james as usurp um, but in many of the late 19th and 20th century editions just simply exercise authority um, but that has been challenged, and I think, I think well challenged, to say, no, this isn't a simple exercise of authority. Um, it, it drives us back to terms such as usurp, or um, I, I actually will, will say this is a power word. This is about, uh, have, about power um, up to, well, lethal power. Yeah. Ability, and it, it always ends up in some form of harm. And is and is never in what the person who receives it thinks is, is in their self-interest. Oh. This is going to be. This is just every single use of it in any circumstance. Uh, but just it
0: up, sorry, just a heads up, everyone. Yeah, there's a baby in here, so if you guys yeah. hear any cries little farts or, like, <laughs> coughs. Yeah. I
2: thought that was Nick this whole time. <laughs>
1: well, the first one was, but that one the latest one. Okay. You,
0: know. you may still hear a ginger kitty in the background, if one of yeah, his Yeah,
2: well, we both have a cat to contend with. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times, they, my cat thinks that when I'm talking and these uh, calls on on the computer, that that's, that's the time that she must be pet. Yeah, of course. But, uh, Anyway, so you're going through that. Another thing is, um, you know, what do we do with Genesis uh, 2 through the, the, the references to Genesis 2 through 3 right in the middle of it? And how do we understand how it relates? So I suppose you want me to wrap this all and put these pieces together.
0: Yeah, that'd be great.
1: <laughs> that'd be helpful. Thank you.
2: Yes. Okay. Well, first of all, um, it's like I said, I don't think this is about instructions on worship uh at all limited to instructions on worship it's talking it's addressing lifestyle issues and it's actually addressing uh problems in the the culture for men and the culture for women so the culture for men uh the problem is with anger and fighting and we will see later in first timothy that paul's going to have a great deal to say about anger and fighting and since he um is says okay i want everybody to pray now men when you you know you pray every place without anger and fighting um, he is he he is going to get into that later, and when he talks about anger and fighting, you should you should really read that as directed towards men. When he talks to women, it, and this is what's strange is it seems like he's talking about seems he's talking about prayer, but he's actually talking about lifestyle choices um, that lead to a godly and holy life, and um, you know living in it peacefully. And so he addresses things. Um, he addresses comportment and he addresses, he addresses lavish, uh, lavish dressing, lavish dresses, lavish hairstyles um, with golden pearls and expensive clothes. And, he, and uh, later on, you'll see he'll, he's going to return to this and, and talk about living a luxurious pro- a lifestyle as a big problem, particularly among the widows. So you can see what he talks about and you can see connections with what he addresses later. Um, And then he turns to the singular, a woman, and her relationship with a man, and and, uh, backs it up with with clear allusions. Not just allusions, but an actual summary of Genesis 2 and 3. And what's interesting about this is this is a narrative. So often I hear people say, okay, treat this as if this is a propositional statement. It is not a propositional statement.
0: Everything is <laughs>
2: a yeah, the, Well, the, but the thing is, is it, is it actually not? Um, in, the, in, my, in the time that I've been in the conservative church, in the evangelical church, <laughs> um, and this might surprise people, but I was taught that you never got theology from history. Whoa. Never. You only got theology from propositional statements. And it was actually part of the of the Denver Seminary doctrinal statement that oh. you only find biblical truth in, in, in propositional statements. Well, they took that out. And I think they took that out sometime in the 80s because it's all of a sudden uh, you realize, oh, well, crucifixion and resurrection and incarnation are kind of narratives, you
0: know?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you go to the confessions. Uh, the stories about them are, that's just history. And, and Acts, that's history. Uh, you don't get your theology from history. And I'm saying, well, I'm really sad when I read the Exodus then, because I kind of thought that was theological. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and so we've moved a long way, baby, right, to to say, oh, no, there is there is theology drawn from narrative. But what's interesting is that when, when we looked at this statement, um, And I don't know which which, uh, translation we want to read, but let's just go ahead and read the C-E-B. Yeah, I'll just go ahead and and read the C-E-B, where it says, um, a wife should learn quietly with complete submission. I don't allow a wife to teach or control her husband. Instead, she should be a quiet listener. Okay, now this is the part. And so there's this little tiny connective that is usually translated as for. It's called a gar, and it's a very little word. And it doesn't say a whole lot. It just basically says this is support material. Mm. And that's it. It doesn't say this is the reason. Um, it doesn't say here's some propositional statements that are going to back me up. And yeah. and the material yeah, is all as Or
0: glossed as for. Um, and Four, Bible.
2: Often, but sometimes not translated. At and all. um and so this is a minimal semantic contribution that basically is signaling, and now I'm getting to my linguistic lingo, basically signaling to say, I'm going to support what I just said. But I'm not telling you how I'm supporting it. You've got to infer that. And I could use another marker that would explain it more, but, I, but, but Paul didn't. Four. Now we have a narrative. This is yeah. a simple narrative. Adam was from first, than Eve. Not interpreted. Um, Adam wasn't deceived but rather uh, his wife became the one who stepped over the line because she was completely deceived. Now, there's a little bit of an interpretation to that, but but not a lot. Uh, and that is to say Adam wasn't deceived, but woman was deceived. Now, that's all said. That's a statement. She was deceived. There's some kind of relevance. It's a summary of the relevance. It's a fair yeah. summary. And, there, and And it's relevant to what's being discussed. But then the conclusion is, but a wife will be brought safely through childbirth. And this is, and now we say in most translations says she'll be saved through childbirth. Um, but that's the consequences. The consequences of the fall for women is that they need to be saved through child from childbirth, because if you're reading this, okay, you've got the narrative where Adam was formed, then the fall took place, then the woman was deceived and Adam wasn't, but here's this childbirth issue that should drive you straight to uh, Genesis Three sixteen, uh, where I hope that's the right verse. <laughs> we'll have, I think it is the. There's Genesis three fifteen. Some people says it drives you to Genesis three fifteen. What said to the serpent? But it's not. It's three sixteen. What said? To, what said to Eve about mm-hmm. the consequences of the fall on childbirth? And that's gets a huge amount of press in Genesis three, and it gets a huge amount of press in this passage that a, a, a wife will be brought safely through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and holiness together with self-control. And so what you have then is this, is, is, this, is a an, the, the only command is that a woman learn and then you, uh, and it goes to the singular, a woman should learn, one woman should learn, but a woman uh, is not permitted to teach or to Says here, control. I could use. I think I was trying to fight for abuse hmm. in this passage. Abuse. Right, you were husband.
0: part of the committee for the translation for this passage, correct?
2: Yeah, I was the editor for this and uh, for for the Pauline um, epistles. And uh, Joel Green was the editor yeah. for. Um, the Gospels, and then we seem to split up the Catholic epistles. Um, I was the translator for Hebrews, so that was in, right. with David yeah, and David. So that's that. some
0: of the context. She was um, part of the like the editorial um, work for this passage for the CEB,
2: right? And so this is this is to say now. There's a bit of a deal about this passage: um, the teaching and the abusing, and are these deities? Um, which is to say, do you, does one word interpret the other? Do you, do you, um, do you interpret them together or are they separate?
0: Yeah. And they're talking yeah. about the authentio and Uday. So the, sometimes people translate it as exercise authority, usurp authority, and then um, ude connects with like teaching. So that's what we're talking about.
2: I, I don't know if we want to get into all that. Um, uh, maybe
0: the, a little bit, maybe just a little bit. There we go.
2: I think you said you did want me to get into it. And so that either or, I, I don't, uh, it, and so here's the deal. Um, and I'm going to give you a couple of different ways, or maybe two basic ways of doing that. It. It's almost like, you notice I'm thinking like flow charts. And I thought through this <laughs> book, I was saying, this is like a flow chart, you know? You can, yeah. you can, you, and, and where you choose, in the, you know, you, you choose a menu on where you're going to go, and that kind of determines your outcome. And so this had thing, like, like, are these words interpreted together, or are they interpreted as, as separate? And so first of all, the I don't do this, nor do I do that, um, there's a big argument and mostly for the complementarians to say, this means they both have to be positive or they both have to be negative uh, because they are, they are interpreted together. And I want to point out that this is, a, this isn't deities that they are actually treating it as a deities because they're saying they must be interpreted together. And if what one,
0: it was the deities, like just
2: the for- deities is when one is contributing to the meaning of the other. And so they say teaching is a positive thing. So the exercise of power, and I'm not even going to say authority, that is a, a misnomer. This is not, authority means that you're authorized, in my view. It's a legitimate exercise of a responsibility. That's what authority means to to me. But power Power is force, and this is a force word in every single place that it's used um, in the the language. And there are about 300 places that we can locate where it's used. You can never see a single instance where this was used in ministry. Mm. It was used in murder. It was used in, uh, well, in most everything where you actually had a, a person doing it to another person always force the person was always harmed and sometimes it's a good thing I mean people say this is a great word because God does it said well yes he does it two times where there's a direct object he does it to the wicked and he does it to Sodom and Gomorrah and they are destroyed. So when God authentics you die. So <laughs> it's a good thing for God to authentain. I'll 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 confirm that. But you don't want to be authentain. I
0: don't want to be the one that it happens to. You, you, know, don't want you to be to try to
2: avoid that. Anyone should avoid this. And so anyone, this is this is uh, you you know, authentain something you do to slaves. Chrysostom says in one place um, that uh, men, you're supposed to be a loving ruler. And just because she submits to you, don't that doesn't mean you can authentain her. And so this is where, this is where I would suggest within the culture. Yeah, the husband could entertain his wife. He could it actually in Roman traditional Roman law, he had the right of life and death over his wife and children. So legally, yeah, man can beat his wife or do whatever he wants. But, but 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 Chrysostom distinguished this word from loving authority and from the loving authority that he considered in a more traditional light of a husband and wife uh, marriage. So I'd say abuse fits in nicely when you're talking about the marital relationship. And of course, we all know that usually, of course, the, uh, the husband abuses the wife, but sometimes the wife abuses the husband. And sometimes there can be reversals in these things for basic reasons. And so at any rate, um, how i'm reading the passage and it came out in the way that i was reading reading this scripture this is he talks about a, a a wife should learn with quiet and complete submission i would suggest that we are not in a worship context here when we go to a singular and then we talk about a woman learning and we talk about her relationship with a man, and we use these kinds of words, we're talking about the marital relationship and the home situation. And what, I sus- and what I suspected in the beginning when we went to the singular, we say a woman ought to learn, that is she ought to be homeschooled. And um, I appealed to 1 Corinthians 14, which some people don't think was original to the passage. I actually don't go with that one. And, and it says, you know, if a, if a woman has questions, uh, her husband should teach her at home. And say this is a Pauline. This is a deal for Paul. A woman should be taught at home. She should be caught up, and so she should be learning quietly and complete submission. And so, if you have certain false teachings in the women's culture, which you'll see later, there are besides what, but besides what you get at here, that there are big problems. That that here saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna solve this issue in the women's culture. We're gonna solve it with homeschooling in the home where women. Are going to learn? What are they going to learn? Um, You know, and I would suggest that's part of the narrative. But but then he says, then he says, okay, she should learn in a home. But I don't allow a wife. It's to teach. I don't allow a wife, nor to control her husband or abuse her husband. Instead, she should be a quiet listener. And so, what this is to say is that he's saying, okay, we're not going to have reversals. And and uh, she's going to and and, and she's not going to sit there and, and pull some power plays in this relationship. But I'm going to suggest that so so the either or passage is to say to could be to say um, now they say it's either positive or negative, and I'm saying well if you're going that way, they're both negative. Thank you because he's already already identified false teaching as a problem in the culture don't just sit there and say semantically teaching's always good. You always interpret a word in context. And right now semantic word has been constrained by the false teaching and Paul is correcting it. So this would not be positive teaching. Do you think
0: it's it's (laughs) kind of this like, um, thinking where a word has, you know, it's very simple. It's like, it, it the word itself is either positive or negative and irregardless of context. And so they kind of read the context in light of the word, um, the way they've reduced the word. Yeah,
2: have, they uh, act like the word has a semantic meaning out, out there in the hemisphere somewhere. Yeah. And there's nothing further from the truth. We derive the definition of a word from the study of the words in context. We, like I said, there's 300 um, occurrences, probably a couple more now, of, of and Te'o at, that we found, I should say, a couple more that are in the files. Uh, but, but that... Um, that, you know, we, we gather those, those, all the differences together and we determine the definition in terms of how they are used in context. But you, and to come at the definition, you should be distinguish the context from the semantic contribution of the word. And I would suggest that teaching is neither positive nor negative. Particularly, it can go either way. It can go either way. And you can't say teaching is just positive because it's positive because we have so many examples, in First Timothy as well, of, of problematic teaching that Paul is addressing. That's so nice, this is, yeah. you, you, if you want to talk about rules for word study, here it is, you know, and, and there's a lot of, uh, I would say, plays moved over the discussion of this ch- passage to say, okay, Authentio has to be a positive word. And to say authentio is always a positive word. And I would say, no, authentio is those words that can be positive, but can be negative. And it totally depends on who's doing it. Totally. So if God's doing it, good. Caesar's doing it, probably good. It, you know, he's authorized. If the Pope Gregory's doing it, yeah, they, they like it. You may not like it, but they liked it. But uh, most often, no one's authorized to do this word because it's kind of like a total authority thing.
1: If we include um, kinship in this, right? So if we take 1 Timothy um, as a family relationship, right? You know, husband and wife. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I noticed was, and Philo, I think, uses the noun of it to suggest what Cain did to Abel. Cain became an authentic, I don't remember this, became an authentic towards Abel. And it's right. like, you look at that, it's like, well, that's clearly not a good thing. This is, means murder, or to slay, or to kill. And and it hasn't, an, he ties it in with ethics, right? He ties it in with, and you've lost your ability to live a blameless life and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, if we take kind of family dynamics, this, this word, it, based on what you said, I don't see how in a family this can be positive at all because it always seems to, like you said, involve some sort of force or coercion or, in essence, violence. And it seems yes. to, kind of, it doesn't seem to mesh with the idea of, I mean, if, it's, it doesn't mesh with the idea of Paul's prohibiting this sort of stuff. It's like he's already prohibiting something. So teaching can't be positive or negative. He's, a, he's prohibiting it. So it doesn't view it as yeah, positive. He's
2: prohibiting the, the the false teaching. And now he's breaking out what false teaching he's prohibiting, that he wants Timothy to deal with, what he talked about in chapter one. And the, and the other thing about what you were saying is, um, oh, I hope it didn't slip away from me. But, um, oh, the fallacy that's mostly applied in this passage is that, What he's prohibiting women from doing, he is um, encouraging men to do. So women are prohibited from from authenticating but men are encouraged to authenticate never nowhere whatsoever what i would say is that paul has 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 said in every way shape and form in his letters that he does not want men to authenticate their wives and now he's turning this to the women and saying you know if i don't want men to authenticate you i sure do not want you to be entertaining them it's a, it's a, it's like mutual submission the opposite of mutual submission it's a mutual nobody's supposed to be doing this or or teaching falsely, but the question is, how do you correct the problems with false teachings? How do you how do you get at it when you're Timothy in a first century church and that those gender relations? He can't meet one on one with these women, um, in you know in most contexts it just wouldn't go over well. But but the men he can teach as it said in, in Second Timothy to teach faithful people who are able to teach others also, and this is what's going on here, and so the most obvious person to teach what's going on in the women's culture and the problems, um, that the, the problems of the hearth and home. This is where the false teaching is taking place and being absorbed and probably transmitted uh, through myths, uh, old wives tales, as it says later in the passage. You know, he's trying to correct this. And then he follows this up with this description, like we say, a, a, um, a description of what everyone considers to be the marriage passage the passage that defines the relationship between men and women and um, now the question is what's being done with this passage and so um, it's often being said this is the reason that women can't uh, teach or exercise authority and that is that they that they um, are they were not uh created first they were created second therefore they cannot hold any kind of authority and the woman was deceived and that must mean women are deceived or something i don't know and um and then this this final passage but the women will be brought safely through childbirth no one really knows what to do that's everyone just kind of throws their hands up and says well we don't know what that means but we sure know what the rest of it means right women can't teach or exercise authority but um i would say the way to read this is to say number one He's, he's talked about um, uh, uh, not not allowing certain myths to be taught, and Katherine uh, Kruger and her husband um, talked about a myth that was current in Gnosticism in the second century, and that Written in the second century, that actually reversed creation and said woman was created first, and said woman wasn't deceived, but man was deceived, and it was a very early document, earlier than a lot of our New Testament papyri mm. um, are, and so and so and furthermore, Gnosticism claims to be based on an oral tradition, and so to me the the likelihood that there was some kind of a creation myth circulating in the women's culture is highly likely, highly likely. There are some other explanations of it, too, and it could be a combination of things. It, um, it's the idea that he's addressing deception, formation and deception, and meaning when you look at the, the, the narrative, he's saying, hey, this is about right. I'll teach the men. The men will teach the women, and it's kind of like the men being formed and the women being formed, and um, and that and the deception that the women are experiencing that that's flowing through the home is being corrected. So, an idea of an analogy uh, flowing from the from the. Um, creation account is also possible. And I think either one of them are good. I still tend to favor the idea that he was correcting a teaching and a problematic teaching, not only a problematic teaching about creation, but a problematic teaching about childbirth. And so you're a first century woman um, in Ephesus, and you're really, really into, um, really, first of all, you've been into Artemis as your mother and, and her mother before her, and there are all kinds of myths and magical practices around childbirth, and you, you know, everyone knows what to do when you give birth. It's going to have to do with appealing to the goddess of Ephesus who has brought you through every stage of your life, and especially this stage now and you're going to have all kinds of practices with the midwife and with with, with the women's culture that are surrounding that. And so this that, that in the women's culture, this is going to be a place where there's a problem is highly likely. And lo and behold, you see in other parts – First Timothy and Second Timothy issues with giving, with having children, having sex, or getting married, and all these kinds of things. And he he addresses them. You don't know what he's addressing, but he talks about there being a problem with with somehow the marriage bed. And actually, I I I with the wording, it's kind of odd. It looks to me like women are withholding sex from their husbands. Because it's kind of a sec, it's not just don't get married, it's more like uh, it, it's they won't, don't want to get married, but people are teaching women to abstain from sex. Now, if I were a woman in the first century and new to Christianity and I read about the story of the fall, I mean, I actually would think about a lot of the things the first time I read it with what woman in her right mind would get married under these conditions. <laughs> <No>? <laughs> and so you can see women in the first. Um, in the first century thinking, I know, I know now we're, we're new in Christ. We just don't have sex and we don't have children. And this problem is dealt with.
1: How, I mean, something I just and what we're saying here in terms of uh, uh control or abuse and, 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 and uh, kinship relationships and, and marriage relationships. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if, if a way of helping people kind of understand a positive vision that responds to this, because you have, uh, at least false reports and stuff in 1 Corinthians. But if if you read 1 Corinthians 7, you know, say 1 to 16, right? And you see the kind of symmetricality of, of sexual, uh, sexual relations and even a husband or uh, unmarried person being saved yeah. through the other, you know, because of the other, or from, you know, through the other, and them not being bound, and children are involved, and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, that, that's kind of the, and just, I'm not put, trying to put words in your mouth, but for me, I read that, or I listen to all this, and my first thought is, 1 Corinthians 7 is the positive vision that Paul probably has kind of at least in mind because yeah you do have explicit authority language there exodusio yes, and all
2: that. yes no question about it and um I, I I was reading over my chapter so I don't know how much I brought all this out but yes and and I and I think that First Timothy uh, two has to be read I say read this in a Pauline context make it coherent with Paul and this is one of the problems of First Timothy that people think it's not Pauline because they think it's contradicting first. Uh, First Corinthians seven. And they actually suggest that, um, that when he says he wants widows to get married, in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, I'd rather you be single. And they say, okay, he's contradicting everything and say, no, no, he's really not. He's actually going right on the same lines. Um, and, and he's actually saying, you know, there are false teachers that are trying to teach you to abstain from sex and marriage. And that's wrong. That's a First Timothy 7 kind of idea. You don't abstain. When you're married, you certainly don't abstain from sex. You know, he would totally not be thrilled with that idea because when his his main idea about being married is to say that you don't have authority over each other's bodies, but you have a great sex life. And um, it, he's got a really healthy understanding of the sex drive. But he says, I really rather of, be-
1: of women's sexuality as well. Like the fact oh, that her as having agency in this like you know uh, he's not with to withhold it from her which takes her needs to a whole different level it's not as if he's like you know men you have you know women you have a right you have to you know the mark driscoll idea right you have to please your husband it's like no husband you you've got <laughs> obligations to your wife's sexuality and her needs and desires and you're not to kind of to put it crudely to lord it over each other in the marriage bed you're both and it kind of he kind of deflates that whole idea. So it's I'm just. Yeah, and then, by he, then he
2: follows it up with saying when he's talking about being single, he says he says um, that if a person who's married, a woman who's married, ought to be concerned with pleasing her husband, and then he turns it over and says a man who's married ought to be concerned with pleasing his wife. So there's this equal equality running all through First Corinthians seven. So those who are actually reading First Timothy. Um, first timothy two twelve as saying a woman ought to not ought not to have authority over her husband are reading that verse in contradiction to the verse that you just referred to It's to say a woman has authority over her husband you say it's his body i don't care are you don't, Are not are we are we going to be gnostic here um you know are we going to be platonic? Paul wasn't, I will assure you. And so and so, this is one of the things to be, make people throw up their hands and say this wasn't written by Paul. It's because people have been reading First Timothy 2 incoherently. But if yeah. you actually look at it in the Greek and you study the meanings of the words, you go, no, this is not incoherent. It doesn't mean the way it's been traditionally read.
0: And they will all just assume incoherence. Like that seems just crazy to me to just assume, oh yeah, the writing just must be incoherent. Like
2: well, let's and let's go there and talk about 1 Timothy, First Timothy two uh, fifteen, talking about yeah. incoherence. Yeah. It's to say everybody's been perfectly happy with an understanding of this passage that says, um, okay, everybody is is justified and saved by faith. And then we get to this and except for women, apparently, they're they're um <laughs> saved. Through childbirth. Well, I'm willing to live with that tension.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as a man, they're they're willing to live with that tension.
2: This has been the the traditional interpretation. I think it's really led to people saying, are women human? Because we understand that Jesus came to save all anthropoi. Um, That's not not the accusative, but I'm just going to use it. Uh They came to uh, save all anthropoi and except women are saved through childbirth in this one one passage. And then, of course, again, people throw their hands up and say, Paul didn't write this. It's totally clear Paul didn't write this. And I'm saying, no, you're misunderstanding the word, in this case, the sozo word. and And they're saying, Paul always means saved. And I'm saying, first of all, you've got a way too narrow definition of saved. Second of all, why wouldn't we, why wouldn't Paul be addressing a soteriological um, aspect of being saved from the effects of the fall? Isn't that what salvation is about? Isn't salvation about being saved from the effects of the fall in Genesis 3? And so we accept that Paul's written up one side and down the other in Romans about saving men from the effects of the fall to them. Now here, go how about him addressing being saved from the effects of the fall for women? They go, no, now that's, that's not likely.
0: <laughs> and and yeah, I would I wonder, say yeah. it's unlikely that he wouldn't I wonder if some of this touches on and the same with um, and some of these other terms kind right. of a difference between um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing these correctly but monosemi and polysemi so kind of just different understandings of meaning and um, can, can there be several meanings or is there always oh. just kind of one where everything else revolves? I all of a
2: sudden realized what you were talking about. I was going, where is that in the passage? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. You're like, whoa, you're, I never saw talking that. talking about whether a word has multiple meanings or yeah. minimal semantic contribution. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that for, now, number one, if you look at the Septuagint and you look at sozo in the Septuagint, most of it means just like being saved from a battle or being saved from an illness, you know, or b- being saved from distress, all kinds of things. And I would say that in the new Testament and in Pauline writings, Paul is incorporating all of those meanings in it. It doesn't mean this abstract, they, they've reduced sozo to an abstract term instead of, instead of one that it really does mean bring safely through. And, and, um, and I've just got to, and and this is a thing that, you know, everyone's got to look more into, but uh, we, you know, this, this whole pandemic thing that we're suffering right now just, just brings up that we're so shocked. We're so surprised. And where's God in this? And I'm saying just exactly where he was in the Bible when they were facing these things all the time. Um, Life was very, very hard um in the ancient near east and in the first century greco-roman empire and um one of the things that was hardest for women was was giving birth and um the i would you know now i'm guessing at this one but i i what i'm doing is i'm using the the worst statistics that were current at least at the time i was writing Paul and gender um the worst um maternal mortality statistics are in in uh, the world are one in seven births oh wow Yes, it's bad, wow. and and so that that is that is um, for every seven births in this one country, a woman dies, hmm. and so I say and and um, uh, I remember that um, when I was um, when some of the most. Um, uh, primitive people perhaps have a fifty percent mortality rate for infants fifty percent mortality rate, so I said you could probably imagine that at this point in time you were looking at a fifty a fifty percent mortality rate for infants and at the very least one in seven births and then when you gathered that I mean with no birth control, no nothing, yeah. the idea that you, that your number came up eventually was was very likely yeah. very so the, the major cause of death for women was, was a childbirth. Yeah. If you weren't killed, you could have horrible things happen to your body. Yeah,
0: infection. Um, just all the, I, I always think about all the times, like if I were an ancient person, I would die. I was like, well, I had an infection. Well, and, and, you know? and
1: thinking about this too, like it, it, it challenges, I think us, just as, as Pauline people, as, as reading Paul, to remember that Paul is so human that he takes, And I don't want to say women's concerns because that's too narrow, but he takes the concerns of people in his congregation so seriously. The fact that he addresses women directly, of course, as moral agents, as as we've talked about and and, um, assuming they have volition and doing things. But even the fact that um, taking your reading on 215 or even if you don't, there's still this sense of the fact that he addresses this deep held cultural concern that probably keeps women up at night all over the place. And he says, no, you, you did. Yeah. It did, it
2: not only kept women up, it was the major driver on the religion everywhere. Not yeah. just Ephesus, but everywhere that women had their own religion. And, and you know, it, to the point that where we excavate these archaeological sites and we find these um, places um, or shrines where women worship, you find all the evidence that they're there about ch- about childbirth. Hmm. They are terrified. They're terrified for them. They're terrified for their mother. They're terrified for their daughter. They're terrified. And so, and this is still the case in places where modern medicine isn't isn't um, uh, uh, practiced, and even where modern medicine is practiced, you have a problem where women aren't allowed access to it. So even in places where they have a condition where they could be saved, you will have men that won't spend their husbands won't spend the money for it. And so there's a campaign called Save the Mothers that's being conducted by a. Um, a woman physician at McMaster right here where I teach Uh and she goes to Africa and she conducts this campaign and she conducts it in the hospitals and she conducts it in um, a politically it's called save the mothers and she draws it from this verse she draws it from this verse save the mothers and and uh, guess what the first thing on the program is
1: what
2: the husband's the husbands are one of the greatest contributors to women's mortality rate um, because they, they starve them, beat them. And when they are dying, they don't get medical help. They won't pay. They, you know. So, And we can go on with the list. And this is how I explain what's going on in the passage. So this is a good segue. Uh, a wife will be brought safely through childbirth if they, because this is one of the weird things about the passage, because it's it's singular until here, and then you've got a plural, they, who who are the, they, they will be brought uh, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness together with self-control. Well, who is, who's the plural? Traditionally, they said all the women in Ephesus, and when I heard that, I said, well, we're all screwed then, because <laughs> the women in Ephesus are someone that I cannot depend on, <laughs> so, so, you know, there's no hope, but <laughs> not now, not then, but, uh, but they, well, who's the they? Well, I was taught in my Greek and in my linguistics that when you have when you it, this is an anaphoric reference and so who would this be most likely to refer to? And look, who are the two people that are closest? And it's the man, it's the man and the woman. And say, you know what? We've got childbirth. We've got they to them. We've got marriage here. We're talking about marriage and childbirth, aren't we not? <laughs> I mean, doesn't this interpret the passage? And also, this is the place where the emphasis comes. The emphasis of this whole thing. Um, starting at eleven, ending with fifteen, comes down to the one thing that no one under- thinks they understand. But I'm saying, is a woman, will be brought safely through childbirth if she and her husband continue with faith, love, holiness, together with self-control. And oh yeah, what's that self-control? That's not getting your wife pregnant when she just got had a baby and her bottom's falling out, right?
1: Yeah. Well, and mm-hmm. and, and,
2: and it, pregnancies yeah. that wear out your body too soon
1: yeah and and it it kind of gives the passage a sense of uh i don't know getting back to the point is paul the fact that Paul cares so much about the bodies of his people, i mean you know yeah. the fact that you know Romans twelve right you know they'll present your everyone slaves women present yourselves as 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 an object of worship to god basically, and here you get a sense in which um here's how both parties can kind of participate, and you don't have i don't want to say it like this but you don't have wifely virtues and you have male mm-hmm. virtues you have Christian virtues that both husband and wife or men and women, you know, more generally speaking, participate in, in, a, in that kind of relationality. And it doesn't kind of, Oh, well, women uh, need to be, have self-control here. It's like, well, no, women seem to have self-control early on, but men also are told to be, you know, control themselves as well. So it seems like, you know, we, we kind of almost like to genderize our ethics, and kind of Paul's just like, no, what's good for, for men is good for women. Yeah. Like everyone oh, has- that's
2: a good has thing for me. Yeah. There's no, there's no special vices. Sometimes I think people think that women just are on the vice list and they're not on
1: they the vice list at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah. To be a woman is to be on the vice list. And yeah. that, that actually is not true. No, I actually see that Paul is, is uh, actually very, very appreciative and supportive of women. If you just read if uh, you just read? <laughs> read a single verse that you've converted into a proposition. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. But but so so the problem with this reading, though, is and the reason people reject it as they say, but women, women did die, and say, well, you're, you're assuming that in that case that the women and the men were cooperating together, and so I'm saying, and, and not just me, but physicians are saying, if in cultures where there's high maternal mortality, if the women and the men are cooperating together with faith, love, holiness, together with self-control, the chances of her surviving are much, much, much greater, and so, so there's something pragmatically being done for women here, and the fear of the things that they're facing and, and the worst possible scenarios that could happen. But, well, women die anyway. Yes, but, but you've got to look into the head of Paul in this, and remember that that objection could be brought against uh, James 5, where it says, is anyone sick? Call the elders and let them lay hands on the, on uh, him, and, uh, and, and the, his sins will be forgiven and he will be saved. And, but but the way it's tr- it's usually translated it's they say saying he'll be healed um most everybody says this is a healing passage and this is the idea of someone sick you ask for the elders to lay hands on you for a healing and that's how it's understood been been understood by and large and the same objection could come but sometimes people are going to die right sometimes it's terminal cancer and yes god can heal but the, the thing we all face is, what do we do when he does it? And that's a, bit, that's a big discussion. We've got exactly the same question here. And I want to just back up a minute and think about Paul's theology and, and think about what being saved entails for him. And now we do go to kind of a spiritualization for him. Think about what's at stake. I mean, what really must have been at stake in, in first century Ephesus, where, where Artemis ruled? And where if you're going to be threatened in childbirth, you're going to most likely call your midwife. And, man, if you lost it right at the point of, ch- I mean, what if you didn't trust? What if you didn't have faith at that point? And what if you said, yeah, just, just bring on the charms. Bring them on. I'm terrified. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what my mom does. I'm going to trust my mom. I'm going to trust my grandmother. I'm going to trust my midwife. Bring on the charms. And then you died. That would be the worst for Paul. That would be the worst. And so when you think about what Paul would think about being brought safely through, he he when he talks about like being saved from the lions and being brought safely through shipwrecks and everything, he is talking about true safety. But but for him, true safety is also being saved from total spiritual wreck. Mm, it's just and, like
0: that in the passage, the yeah. shipwreck.
1: So almost like Colossians through one, your life is hidden with Christ, and so there's that kind of—I don't want to say es- eschatological. I think that's kind of a cheap word, but you're 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 already in some sense kind of protected in Christ and all that sort of stuff as well. So. But yeah, and-
2: very seriously, if at this liminal moment for the woman, that she abandoned her faith and put it in, in uh, magic practices um, mm-hmm. the, and the magic cultic practices of Artemis. So as far as Paul is concerned, and I think you'd agree with me that being saved in this case, he does mean being saved from the consequences of childbirth, but he also means being saved through an experience that is that is incredibly threatening, right? Yeah. Incredible, and it would be threatening because you remember, uh, you remember when Paul was um, preaching in Ephesus, how um, he he did an exorcism, and everyone was so impressed. All the men brought their magic books and burned them in mm-hmm. Ephesus. Yeah, and and so I'm saying, if and I go back to the, I uh, usually I should have this detail off the top of my head. The magic books were something like two years of wages. There were a lot of magic books. I'm going and I'm gonna suggest that the women were mostly illiterate. You couldn't get to their magic, their magics. Yeah, it's definitely going to be done in the back room um, with the, by the midwives um, and in these kinds of these kinds of situations. So the women were at risk when they gave birth. And how interesting this is that you just gave birth, Allison. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And And they talk about this liminal moment um, as being so vital for a woman and so important in women's religion. But you know, you and I, I had a C-section with my first baby and um, I would have died. Yeah. I would have died. I wouldn't be here. I I had a breech birth for my first, for my first baby. And, but I really didn't have to worry about it so much, but um, this is a new life. It's very different from how it was for women in the first century, I would have been gone. Yeah. All right. Nick's going to ask
0: a question while I change the diaper. Sure. Uh, <laughs>
1: in, in light of all of this, and, and it's it's just compelling stuff, and thinking, of course, about authentio and, and Word Studies and kind of bringing it all together, um, I wanted to read uh, an objection uh, offered by uh, a colleague of yours, uh, not at McMaster, I don't believe. I think he's at, oh gosh, I should know this, Redeemer, I believe it is, Al Walter. Is that? Oh, Al
2: Walter, Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I have
2: mine in fact. Yeah. Uh,
1: he says so in, in the chap. I think he says so in this, uh, I have in front of me, women in the church, the third edition edited by, um, Andreas Kostenberger and Tom Schreiner. Uh, Tom Schreiner is a graduate of Fuller as am I, but we ended up very differently on this subject. Um, yeah. uh, Walters, as you know, has done a lot of work on authentic and nouns and verbs and all that sort of stuff. He's, I believe a classicist and he, uh, off, he, uh, apparently, and I, I don't know if you've seen this and uh, I don't know if you've seen this. <laughs> the, uh, uh, you've got this oh, right. I,
2: <laughs> I can't stand this light in my face.
1: No, I, I was, I was looking, I'm like, I don't know how she can survive that. That's she's, I pretty,
2: can't, I can't and, uh, p- furthermore. I've got the whitest skin on earth, especially after self-isolation for six weeks. Oh, gosh, yeah, I'm amazed. Weeks. I'm
1: not transparent at this point.
2: <laughs> oh, this is better. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> And so I, I have in front of me the, the Women in the Church, the third edition by uh, Kostenberger and Schreiner. Right. And in it, um, I don't know if you had a chance to look at uh, Al, or Doc, I should say Dr. Walter's, pardon me for that, Dr. Walter's uh, chapter on Authentia. Uh-huh. Uh, well, at-
2: I looked at it. Um, yes, I have seen it, although it might have been uh, revised slightly since I saw it. So tell me what it says.
1: Okay, uh, I'm just going to include the, uh, the postscript. Um, he says, uh, let me find his conclusion just to give kind of a, a broad kind of, consensus um as i said at the outset my and this is page 113 uh, so at the very end as i said at the outset my basic thesis in this chapter is that authenteo in 1 timothy 2:12 is very unlikely to have either a pejorative or an aggressive meaning and then he says a number of converging lines of evidence have, has confirmed this thesis cognates immediate context ancient versions patristic commentary and the broad usage of the verb elsewhere um, so it seems like, and this seems to be what both he and I believe it was, um, I forget his first name, but Dr. Baldwin in the second edition said, Baldwin, yeah. yes, where they kind of, and you address Baldwin very explicitly in your book, in your uh, article, um, there seems to be, and this might get us back to understanding method. They seem to kind of, I wouldn't say bifurcate, that's probably not the most charitable way of saying it, but kind of making, drawing a very strong distinction between nouns and verbs as it relates to the study of and or authentes. Um, so, do you have just kind of broad thoughts on that sort of kind what of? He's saying that
2: I was t- drawing a distinction between nouns and verbs.
1: Uh, he doesn't actually say so. He says here. Oh. Uh, no, that
2: was Baldwin's study that did that. Yeah, and that was Baldwin's um, study.
1: Um, he seems to focus more on verbs, um, but he says here. Um, oh, I'll just read the postscript, and if you've got something, just interject, and we'll we'll go from there. Um, uh, he says, as this chapter was about to go to press, I became aware of an extensive article by my friend and colleague, Professor Professor Cynthia Long Westfall. All right. That is based on an analysis of sixty occurrences of authenteo and that often proposes an interpretation different from my own. Footnote, he cites your your article in um, uh, journal of Greco Roman christianity and judaism i believe it is
2: you're um, right we call it jay yeah that's it yes it's, it's, our, it's our journal right uh, it's my school yeah <laughs> and i'm i think i'm on the editorial board not sure but i think so
1: and okay, he's go on. yeah he continues with a basic assumption of westfall's analysis is is that quote a word has a basic semantic concept that accounts for extended peripheral or marginal meanings end quote and that's uh a minimal
2: semantic contribution yeah
1: yeah. And that's a, uh, he quotes uh, page 140. And he says, however, in my judgment, it is a methodological mistake to assume that a given lexeme has such a basic concept or, okay, I, there's German here. Give me one second. I'm learning German. Um, I can read it. Where is uh, it? No, it's right here. Grunz. I want you to read it. It's right here. I'm, I'm assuming it looks like some sort of contextual. Uh,
0: Grundbedeutung.
1: Grundbedeutung, Yeah. I, I, think. Think,
0: I think that's right.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Grundbedeutung.
1: That's um, it. and he continues in the case of like the,
2: meaning, the ground meaning. That's okay. what it means.
1: That's what I was thinking. Mm-hmm. I, was gro- grund. I was like, Oh, that looks like ground. But Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, ground, he's and and bedo- meaning. Good job. <laughs>
1: uh, and, uh, he continues. Um, so basically says, um, you made a methodological mistake to assume that a, the given lexeme has such a basic concept or the ground of being, um, or the grounding language. Uh, in the case of Authenteo, uh Westfall argues that this basic semantic concept can be defined as, quote, the autonomous use or possession of unrestricted force. And I think we've already kind of established that, um, mm-hmm. I would say, very strong meaning. Um, and what yeah, he does... I've, that, I've made
2: that argument.
1: Yes. And his response is essentially to argue that this conceptual definition doesn't fit very well with the verbs, many of the verbs occurrences. And he lists, you know, three, you know, see example three, four, five, six, seven, and so on and so forth. But he doesn't really give any sort of kind of reasoning for why it can't fit. Um, And it seems to me a lot of the, and I'll summarize, it seems to me that he kind of, his his response is essentially um, that uh, a disagreement on methodology. And so maybe a way of kind of, on, on
2: theory as well, semantic theory it's a disagreement on semantic theory. Um, okay. and so and that's important to say that that um i I was I found that semantic theory first of all, we've been working with it, and I find it quite convincing it's it's to say um you could look at a word and you could look at its scope of meaning, and so you can, for instance, like if you're familiar with Greek, if you looked in a Greek lexicon, you said, how many um, meanings does this Greek word have in the English language? And and it might have seven or eight. And so, you know, he wants to say, okay, this word has seven or eight meanings. Um, and I would suggest, and, and so, at, so at any rate, it's like to say some of them, and they were going to say some of them aren't even semantically associated with each other. They're really, really different. And so what um, the minimal semantic contribution um, is, will argue is that actually these words come from metaphorical extensions of a core meaning. And you, you look at a word, and you and and unless there's something like they're um, loan words that have the same sound from another language, there's going to be some kind of association between mm-hmm. them. And I, I I have fun like thinking about the word sweet. And how there's so many ways the word "sweep" can mean, and and they're and they're semantically crazy different from each other. You know, I'm going to sweep the floor up with you versus sweep the floor. Those are basically totally different meanings. But I'm going to suggest that when I say, "Okay, I'm going to sweep the floor," now with the next, I said, "Well, Nick, I'm going to sweep the floor up with you." I basically said, "I'm going to beat you to a pulp." And and uh, so, what's the relationship between beating you to a pulp? And sweeping the floor and so if we're translating it into another language you see don't use the word sweep say she's going to beat them up yeah and and what's the relationship between cleaning your floor and beating someone up you know <laughs> or i'm going to do a clean sweep um in my athletic contribution and um, my in my athletic comp- uh, competition and so um so what it is, is that in the English, there's an actual relationship between these words. Um, and, and we can talk about how the sweeping, some aspect of sweeping gets more metaphorically extended. Now, with the word authentao, um, one of the things that we haven't brought up is that it, it's not only a hapex legomena, a hopex legomena means that it's only used once in scripture, but, but it is the first time that we know of that it occurred in the Greek language at all and so this is actually a real problem for studying the word because normally if we study a word we're going to say what did that word mean at the time that it was used you know and in and, and, and we could even say uh, you know, we know that the, the meanings of a word can shift over time and, and incidentally the words like lunacy that means being crazy and go well the etymological fallacy is to say it has something to do with the moon." true, but it's not an etymological fallacy to recognize that lunacy has some relationship to other things with the word lunar in it and how it got there. So, so um, at any rate, um, with athentao, with, with we have no occurrences known before Paul used it. So where did the word come from and how can we talk about what it meant? So, well, after he used it, we see it popping up in a number of places. And the reason I didn't um, work with as many words as, as um, say I said there's about three hundred occurrences in the end, I broke down about sixty, and that 's because a whole lot of those occurrences were in biblical interpretation of first Timothy two. And so we say, okay, if we cut out First Timothy two and say that was it within the religious discussion let 's just look at how that word was used in in, um, in, in secular language. Because when you uh, when because by the time you know it comes down the road in biblical interpretation, it kind of becomes a technical term. Well, yes, it has. It's become a technical term, and and what people believe about the interpretation of the passage influences how it's interpreted. I did look at Chrysostom's though, and that one thing because I thought it was too important. But most, for most of my testing, I looked at how it was used elsewhere. And one thing that Al Wolters has has added that is helpful is that he studied the noun authentes and and some of the cognate other cognates. You brought up authentes, Nick.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, Baldwin had said. It, 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 he had actually invoked the etymological fallacy and said, you can't look at the meaning of, of authentic' to look right. at authenteo. And I decided, oh, you go play with that. And I'll just go ahead and work with your verbs because I can work with the verbs. And the reason he doesn't want to look at is because authentes means things like master of a slave and murderer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a final in, example it,
1: from earlier, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so what this probably is um, is that it's either a a vulgar term, or it's some people say it's a vulgar term. Say someone says, "Don't say that. That's vulgar." It's like, "Hey, okay. It's the kind of thing you're not going to put in writing, but Paul did. Yeah, sure, why not? I <laughs> see him as that kind of guy. <laughs> it shocks people that I see him that way. You know, um, when he says, "I leave all else, be- everything else behind. Everything else is just a naughty word." it means crap yeah (laughs) and so in the ceb i said that's crap and i put and i put it in that's what it means and they go No! And I said, yes, it does. So, what we're saying is the
1: CEB just isn't biblical enough on that
2: one. It was um, the publisher said, Cindy, we cannot have this called the crap Bible. We're not going to go there. And so I said, that's what it means. Or you could say shit, you know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No! (laughs) You should have seen compromising.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's what the word means. I I went and looked. (laughs) I actually, you're right. I went and looked at the word. I was like, yeah, it means excrement. Yeah, and it's often a little more crude than just saying technical. Oh, it's just excrement. So Wait, know, what do they
2: say a lot? Yeah, it doesn't really mean excrement, but it, the reference is the same. Yeah, yeah excrement's know, a way a nice on? word. Yeah, so so the idea that he'd wow. use something that was kind of vulgar like this mm-hmm. um, makes sense. Uh, and, and so when I started my study, I actually thought I was going to find something different because I knew it was called vulgar. But now it's it's like say no, I just think this is where they took a noun and they made a verb out of it, and that's what Al Walters thinks too. I look at Al Walters' study, and he said he said authentic basically his idea is it means to treat someone like a slave. And my and my conclusion is very good. And when you have a slave and you treat them like a slave, that's okay. <laughs> but Not okay in ministry. That's exactly what Jesus was saying. You could not do. You become a slave. You do not treat other people like slaves. This is forbidden. Exactly. Thank you. Case closed, as far as I'm concerned.
0: You don't even treat slaves like slaves. Yeah. In the Bible, you don't even treat slaves like slaves. No,
2: oh, you're not supposed to be treating slaves like f- slaves, you're supposed to be treating them like brothers and sisters. This is a force word. And this is a word where when you do it, they end up having their self interest overridden because of course, yeah, slaves can't slaves can't please themselves they have their self-interest constantly overwritten, but it goes way beyond the treatment of a slave in my treatment. Like I, and I, so I broke out the word study and this is basically how you do word studies. It's like I said, there's not a, there's not a semantic meaning in the sky. So a, 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 an absolute definition that you pull down. Incidentally, this is a big problem with um I would say a lot of conservative scholars is they reduce They reduce meanings of these words like salvation or authentic to some kind of an abstract absolute Mm -hmm. where where they where the meaning is much more delicate. But what they're actually doing is reducing it to what they think is its semantic domain. Mm -hmm. What they're really saying is the semantic domain of authentic is is authority. And I'm saying it's not not how I understand. And authority that's mis—that that is misleading it's power not authority because most of the times it's used the person is not authorized mm. and and, uh, and and so if, if they're not authorized the meaning is negative with only one exception that i know of i know one exception where it was positive and so um so I, so that's in a case, it's really a famous case among people who study this word. There was this uh, Callistus the Boatman where a guy was traveling with a companion. And um, he's traveling with a companion and everything seems to be going real well. And all of a sudden they get to the ferry and they, the, the, the Callistus the Boatman carries them across the river. And all of a sudden his friends, his companions countenance changed and he became a complete jerk. And he refused to pay the boatman. And he said, "I just had to come in there and authenticate him." And so he paid the boatman. <laughs> and it's, an, it's like a letter of apology, and you know the way I read it is, how did you come to treat this person with this kind of disrespect? And I've heard people say the guy was a slave because, no way, the guy was probably an aristocrat. And he was probably of higher standing than the guy who wrote the letter. And the guy who wrote the letter is trying to explain why he forced this guy to do something he didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, there you go. That's a tane for you. In yeah. and, and this case, and, and was it a terrible thing? No, he didn't die, but he sure wasn't happy about it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you can have force and all this sort of stuff for a, yeah. maybe a noble end, but that's not what we see in 1 Timothy or most, I would, yeah. I mean, what Cain did certainly is not laudable. I <laughs> mean, what he did to Abel is certainly not a good thing. Oh, and, not- and,
2: and that, of course, is much more uh, consistent with the history of the word. It's much more associated with things like Cain's action, uh, where he took the life of someone. And so you say you took, and I say it's lethal force. It's force up to lethal force. Lethal force very commonly. So executioners do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's always force. And um, sometimes it's good. And and more often it's more often it's bad, and you just have to go with the context. But like I said, the main determinant is who's the person doing it. Do they have authority to do it? If they don't have authority to do it in that culture, it's going you're going to have some explaining to do, or it's just bad. Yeah. Usually, you can't explain it away because it's when you disrespect the kind of class distinctions that would be involved in that. You know, most people aren't going to accept it in this culture, our culture now. Oh yeah, but oh yeah. then no. It, it was always. It's always pretty much. If you don't have the right, or you don't have the responsibility, and you do this thing, it is wrong.
1: So we, it, go okay, go ahead. Oh no, we have gone through uh, linguistics. We've gone through uh, <laughs> all all the like that. We this is uh, this was great. Uh, uh, we checked
2: right? practice. I hope I wasn't yelling too loud. I realize. No, I no, haven't. this is
1: this is perfect. This is why we, <laughs> you're. It, we're always tickled just to have experts on to talk about the things they're passionate about. And so uh, what I, what I, in wrapping up, uh, I think a lot of what people can take away is uh, in addition to this being a power word or a force word, it having very strong connotations or even maybe as we mentioned a little vulgarity uh, or even mm-hmm. notions of lethality to it or faith, you know, there's a fatal aspect, but also to the idea of basic biblical interpretations. And you can be a complimentarian and, and, and do all that sort of stuff, but it's a way of saying, taking scripture so seriously that we don't opt for kind of easy answers. So for example, like Paul didn't write this because this, we know in Romans 16, you know, Junior and Phoebe, so Paul couldn't say this. It's like, well, maybe that's the case, but we need to be, we need to read scripture with the sort of, I don't know. And for me, it's intellectual curiosity. Like, you know, what if, what if this happens this way in this way? Um, And I think for, uh, for, um, and, and, and wrapping all this up, there's just a way of saying, look, there's, so much work to be done in scripture and so much ways of doing scripture well and treating it well. Um, but I think we, we do a major disservice to I would say the life of the church because it's not as if this is a neutral issue in churches. We, no. we all know that this has immense, um, practical implications and all that sort of stuff. But I think what we've seen here through what you've done in Paul and gender and, and also your, your work in, um, and, and, and various journal articles and stuff. I also work with churches and stuff. I know you've been on yeah. podcasts and stuff. I think what we've seen here is a way for people to, for complementarians who are studying this issue to look and go, okay, this is so much more complex and bigger and essentially what we're basically saying is you're now welcome back to wrestle with Paul's language here in a way that maybe you hadn't done before. Because I know for me, just it, it, was an, it was an eye-opening thing to basically go, I need to go back to the Bible again and study this when i thought paul was banning all women from everywhere from doing the you know from having authority and stuff like that
2: yeah and please understand like to to me this is this is a, this is a battle for the bible because these are uh, all of these passages are, are have been treated incoherently yeah and just leave me that leave that verse lying on the floor that women are saved through childbirth yeah <laughs> People sit there and run circles around how that's not a, a um, theological contradiction. And then, and then you have people come in and say, oh no, they're saved through the birth of the child. No, there's nothing to signal that in this passage. That is not even coherent, and that's not how it works linguistically. We go on with that. I, I, I just, that, it, that does not solve the problems to me because how in the world would I get that? given the context that I've been given.
0: You'll have to but, come back and uh, debate with me on that one.
2: Oh, because you like that one. Well,
0: yeah, yeah it depends on um, how. Oh, yeah,
2: fun. right. You said that in the paper. That's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then yeah. I sat there and I didn't say
0: anything. It was very nice. I was like, oh, she want, she, she's She got some stuff. I was uh, like. I have, some I have some thoughts. Have
2: some thoughts. But do. that's okay. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm um what I really am interested in um clearly I think from my work is is yeah. that I don't think we ever do each other favors um to like polarize and say okay we hold this view and you hold that view yeah you know? true like for instance the first Corinthians fourteen passage um to say yep that wasn't in the original Bible you know that was that wasn't it that wasn't in there and say okay everybody take that position I am like no and you know what that doesn't work really well I mean I could I can say. Yeah, there are some arguments for that, and here's the evidence. Yeah, but but if if we leave it there, how does? And and I'm not totally convinced by the. What I'm convinced by the evidence is that people always had problems with the passage that says, "Let women be silent in the churches." Yeah, but and they always said, "I don't even know what this is doing here," and I get that. So I go and, and that this was always considered an issue. That doesn't mean it wasn't original, so um, so at any rate i don't think we' do- we do each other favors if we all just line up behind certain positions true. without allowing a healthy dialogue to say we just don't have to jump on the on the you know on interpretations together the first one we see, and what we do want to say is we don't go with incoherence
1: hmm.
0: that's true, yeah,
1: and so. Yeah what what would be your word for for people studying this issue, maybe people on the fence, or or maybe a better question is uh, in light of all of this, in light of everything we've talked about and we've gone through, um, what's, and, and I've had a, a lot of colleagues at, at Fuller kind of begin to realize that they had gifts and callings and it was only at a place like Fuller or a place like McMaster, or even places, you know, more seminaries that are more open and egalitarian. And what would you say in light of everything to that, person, particularly women, because my, my female colleagues at Fuller really came out of really strict backgrounds uh, when it related to their calling. What would you say to them, just as a, a parting word of, of, of exhortation to them, That um, what, what can you say to them in this, uh, based on everything we've said, uh, as a way of kind of empowering them towards their calling, if they're kind of working through that?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, what's really clear is that uh, right from the beginning that women were supposed to be getting an education. And, and that's one thing that's absolutely clear in this passage, which was, which was really countercultural, that women were supposed to be learning. And so they're in the right place if they're learning and, and they're growing. I, and along with that, I mean, this isn't the passage that's telling you what you're supposed to be doing in the church. There are clear passages on that. 1 Corinthians twelve through fourteen and Romans twelve, those are absolutely crystal clear that that there have been given gifts or graces to every one of us, and that that uh, we need to be um, determining what they are with, with with you know a sane estimation, and that means for I think for a lot of women that sane estimation means stop underestimating yourself.
0: Mm.
2: You know, you say you recognize that you, you, God has given you a calling, and, and God has given, God has gifted you, and uh, your responsibility is to follow that. And that's your primary responsibility because it's like the the parable of the talents, where God gives. Each, I'm using King James language, because sometimes I just have to lapse. But you know, God gives a um, God gives a talent to uh, a certain number of talents to each person to invest, and in. each person has a different amount. But every person is is really under an obligation to God's lordship to use what they've been given. And all I can say is that women in the Western world have been given a lot. And, and, um, you have to look and say, wow, what have I been given? What are my abilities? What are my, what's my circle of influence? Mm -hmm. And, and to say that, it pleases god to self limit yourself in that area doesn't make, no no men read the scripture that way they actually would say you know i i think we're called to authenticity we're called to be who we were created to be and we're we're called to recognize the good gifts he's given us not as consumers but as to to lay these down in service for others so that's what the big calling is and it there's there, there nothing nothing in scripture that would say it pleases god for you to not use the gifts he's given for you to bury them in the ground because you're a woman and that's what you've been told that and i i've been told that and so scripture's crystal clear that that you you follow the lord you follow god and you're obedient to him and where that divides with people that would say don't do it you got to follow him and so the same word for you that i would say for to any man to any man it's the same there's no difference in the in the call there's no difference in the gifting now i will say maybe women uh, you know if you wanted to do uh, surveys or something maybe women tend to be this way or more that way or something else it doesn't matter what women tend to be i, I broke all those molds if you say um, I, I was always frustrated as what women are supposed to be this way and i'm like i guess i'm well, broken I'm <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not that way you know, it's like, it's I am what I am. And, and I, God made me this way. And, and this is what made me want to study his word. And you'll never tell me that studying his word and going for it like I did was, was the wrong thing to do. That was, the thing that, that was the thing that saved me. It saved me. So it saved me in every spiritual sense. Kept me out of drugs. Kept me out of a promiscuous sexual life. Kept me out of mental illness. Out of everything else my whole family experienced. Wow.
1: Well, thank you, Doc, for spending time with us and using your, your gifts to, I mean, I, just as a word, I using I, your
0: powers for good. Yes, using your graces for good.
1: <laughs> um, but I, I
0: have a question.
1: <laughs> I had I a, a I was, I was talking to a few friends of mine who I I recommended the book to them. And several of them have moved from very strong, I, I wouldn't say complementarianism, because I've never recognized that form of complementarianism. But a lot of them have moved either towards egalitarianism or to the fence where they're still wrestling through it. But let's, let's not pretend that God has not given you gifts for the service and building up of God's church. So we just want to say thank you for using your gifts with us today and, and leading us and teaching us and our audience. And it's, it's been an absolute blast. And I'm, I'm, I am disappointed, though, that we did not get to hear your cat. I was there. was. Oh,
2: where's she been? But I'm going to say one postscript that okay. you bring up about, about people moving in their position um, and, and uh, being where they are. And I think it's extremely important that we, um, we love each other and that, that I, I know I have, I have really good friends, people I just love that are complementarians, and um, and to some extent, I, I owe where I am to, well, Craig Blomberg uh, has been a person who's encouraged me in ministry, and so I want to say that instead of polarizing, that we hold hands across the divide and say there are many things we can work together and appreciate in each other, and, and, um, and yes, there's some hostility sometimes, but when someone's wanting to work with me, I will work with them. I will, I will work with you. I will be for you, Um, and so I, I would like to call all of us to that kind of cooperation together.
1: Amen. It's a good word. Well, thanks doc. Thank you for the almost two hours you've spent with us. Uh, (laughs) no, no, it's, I I was, this was perfect. Thank you so much. Our
0: episodes are all over the map.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But this is a subject that needed time and, and, and expertise and we got, we had both. And so thank you so much for spending, uh, your Saturday with us. It's been a blast.
2: I was delighted. And you're my friends, so even for, because you're my friends, even if you weren't, I would have done it. Just for us. (laughs) We like to think it's just for us. Okay, thank you for asking me, and I really appreciate it.